Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. I'm not going to go to my hanging crying. I'm going to go laughing. So, uh, When you're ready, sir, let's get underway. I'm ready. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlyle. This is the Acquirers Podcast Special Edition, speaking to Dr. Ben Hunt of Epsilon Theory. We're going to talk about his background, about the site, about the narrative engine, about coronavirus. We'll be talking to him right after this. Tobias Carlyle is the founder and principal of Acquirers Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquirers Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquires Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit AcquiresFunds.com. Hi, Ben. How are you? I'm great, Tobias. How are you? Thanks for having me on. My absolute pleasure. Uh, I've been reading your stuff for quite a while. I'm, I'm absolutely thrilled to be chatting to you. Just, um, just so folks can contextualize you a little bit, you're, you're a Harvard PhD in 1991. Yeah, I, I I don't admit that to many people. You know, it's uh, that's the old thing. You know, if you if you went up to Harvard, you say you went to school in Boston or something like that. It's they a, say the it's little a, it's a no win situation. Little social science school in in Boston, isn't that the way? Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. And and to make matters worse, you know, I I got my degree in uh, in well, everywhere else calls it political science. You know, this kind of oxymoron of political science, but the uh, but but the really bad thing is that my field uh, was econometrics and statistics, so people kind of get that. But the the main thing I worked on was game theory, and of course you you know that's that's the old you know line these days. Oh now let's apply some game theory, you know. So I, I I can't even tell people what my real field of study was without without people laughing. But uh, but yeah that that was it. That was it. I, I was a I was an, an academic for a professor for ten years. Uh, I'm defrocked now, you know. You know, once you once once you leave the university, you're you're you, you, you can never go back. It, it really is like leaving a church. It's uh, uh, and there's there's a lot to to say about that. But I, you know, I always had the entrepreneurial bug, and uh, <laughs> I, I think a lot of your listeners and, and probably you yourself understand that it really is a bug it's not a feature right I mean, <laughs> you just can't help yourself so uh i think it's factory installed though i don't think there's anything you can do about it, it yeah, there's there's nothing you can do about it, it you're, you you're you're born that way for sure so i had started a company in grad school i, I started a company when i was a, a faculty member and Finally, I just realized that I had to, you know, succumb to that entrepreneurial, you know, virus. And so I, I left I left a tenured spot to start a software company uh, and uh, moved back up here to Connecticut for that. That was in 2000, uh, moved back up here. And, yeah, I'm, I'm originally from the South. I'm from Alabama. The heart of Dixie. That's what it says on our license plates, anyway. And uh, so, so I've I've been up here in Connecticut with my family for the past twenty years, and uh, we did we did well with the company. I, I sold uh, my stake in the in the software company that that we started, and from there I decided to uh, 
play the biggest game of them all. You know, it's that old game theory again, right? But the, but the biggest game in the world is the game of markets, of political markets, of investing. So I, you know, I had the opportunity to uh, join an asset manager, start a hedge fund there, and we did we did really well. It was uh, I, I don't know that it was. Why did we do well? We, we, we did well because there are times in the world where thinking differently matters. And the years leading up to the great financial crisis, the great financial crisis itself, that was a time when thinking differently mattered. I think Ralph Powell and describes think, that as the fat tails approach, right? Yeah, yeah, right, right. And we're at another one of those periods of time, I think, where, where we're thinking differently really matters and and so that's why i'm so happy to to be on your show and you know it, it's what i do now i i write i do research and about i think i hope thinking differently about investing but about the way we live our live our lives let me just ask you three quick questions so uh Sure. Can you can you give us uh, is there a layman's version of your game theory that you can is there some way that you can articulate it for us without the without us needing to be John Nash? <laughs> sure. Game theory is strategic interaction. Yeah, just like the tango, it takes two to play a game, and all game theory is is trying to be rigorous that what you do may well depend on what you think I'm going to do. And what I'm going to do may depend on what I think you're going to do. And both of us understand that the other one is thinking the same way. Right. <laughs> Game theory at its core is this understanding that you're actually no more, you're, no, you're not smarter than the other guy. That, that we're all able to think strategically and we're all enmeshed in this idea of, well, I'll do this if he does that, but he'll do this if he thinks I'm going to do this other thing. You would think that that might be sort of random or infinitely recursive at least, and it's not. There are, there are rules to that, rules based on how we as human beings are hardwired. Uh, rules based on rationality and information flow. That was probably a, more than a thumbnail sketch, but that's what game theory is. It's just trying to figure out those rules. There are some famous versions of it, right? There's Prisoner's Dilemma, where sure. each one has the incentive to rat the other one out. And so if you play that out to the end, they both rat each other out. And then there's Prisoner's Revenge, yep. I think, where the gang can find the guy who gets out. And so that changes the dynamic a little bit. And then there's also, I, I'm not, I forget what it's called. Chicken. 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 Chicken's a famous one. Yeah. One with the two. There's one with two lovers who they'd rather be together than apart, and so they uh, that that changes how their incentives are when they're trying to decide what they're going to do. Can you? What What was your area of study uh, in particular? If that's not If that's not too technical. No, it's not technical at all. It's we're we're all familiar with these. Let's call them two-person games, two-player games. Because they're they're fun, we all know examples of them. We all see examples of them in our media, our culture, 
right? So the, the prisoner's dilemma game is at the heart of every police procedural, you know, every CSI, every, uh, you know, every, you know, every NYPD show. I mean, it, it, it's based on a prisoner's dilemma. Chicken is also a wonderfully evocative game because we're all familiar with it, right? Um, from Footloose, you know, to uh, an older generation, Rebel Without a Cause. These are all good examples of the, the game of chicken. Uh, but what's really powerful to get about game theory is it's not these two-person games, as, as fun as those are to play. Game theory can say so much about how we act as a crowd, right? So, so, so what is our crowd behavior? What is the, are there rules to the way uh, investor behavior works? Right? Are there rules to the way that political behavior works? You know, it, it, those are the those are such powerful forces in our lives, right? You know, are there rules to the way our families work? You know, it's it's these group dynamics that I think are so powerful. We we tend to kind of wave our hands at these group dynamics and we say, oh, it's chaotic or random or who can figure that out. And the fact is, there are these games that are played as crowds, and trying to figure out those rules, man, that's at the heart of, I think, playing the game of markets, playing the game of elections. Right. Uh, and so, so that's what I really try to write about and what I really try to study. And what did your software uh, firm do? <laughs> well... It was very boring software, which is why I was successful, right? So, so we started the company. I love it. It was in March of 2000. So the, the, pretty much to the day that the NASDAQ bubble burst right. in, in March of 2000, you know, we started this company and we're looking for, for investors. And we were successful because it was boring software. It, it filled a very specific need for, I'm telling you, it's boring construction equipment rental owners wow. <laughs> right? so so you know cat rentals or united rentals construction equipment it's like homeless people once you start looking for it you see you see them everywhere and it's there are so many things in life that are like that we we just take them as kind of the fabric of our lives and to our detriment we don't notice them and I can give you a silly example like construction equipment, which is actually everywhere once you start looking for it, or a, or, or a non-silly example like homeless people who are also everywhere, and we, we ignore them, we don't see them, and, and that's, a, that, that's a tragedy, and that's why it's so important, I think, to open our eyes and to, to, to see what surrounds us. But you know, to your question, it was trying to make sense of unstructured data for uh, construction equipment rental companies. <laughs> and the unstructured data that they work with are parts diagrams, schematics, right? Pictures. Uh, a picture is a form of unstructured data. Today I work a lot with text and what we say and transcripts of what you, you know, hear on CNBC and the like. That's another form of unstructured data. But what the, this, this common thread through all of my work, my, my academic research, 
a software company, uh, the investment philosophy and, and, and research there is all about trying to see, literally see, literally visualize the unstructured data that we swim in. It's the water in which we swim. And we don't pay attention to it because it's the water we're swimming in. Right. right? We, we, we don't pay attention to all the messages that, that hit us every day uh, through media, through our, our, our friends, our family. It, it, you know, the average human being, you've done some work on this, we, we receive about some crazy number, 7,000 messages per day. And we don't count them. It doesn't really feel like we're receiving messages. But that's exactly what's happening to us. I mean, I mean, think about, you know, as you know, how many minutes in the day, waking minutes in the day, are you not hearing some human instantiated message? Right? Not many. If you Right. If you take a shower, right? I mean, maybe not, but maybe even then, if you've got a radio playing, right? It's, it's, it's kind of crazy when you think about it, but, but that's what my research is all about, trying to visualize, trying to understand what are the rules then for how this unstructured data uh, impacts us, affects us as a crowd. That's, that's game theory. That's unstructured data. That's, that's what it's all about. And I'm going to move on to epsilon theory in one moment. Just, but just could you give a little more detail on the fund? Was it uh, was it a short biased or or, or volat- volatility or what was, was it a blow up fund or what were you what were you running? What no, was no, no. It was it was it was just a long short equity focused uh, uh, fund. You know, started with some employee money at the 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 firm that we started it in, in 2005, and. Uh, you know, like I say, there, there, there are periods of time in the world where thinking differently really matters. And, uh, you know, we were able to think differently. You know, I, I didn't, I don't come out of Wall Street, right? And, and, and there, you know, there are periods of time where that's a real advantage because you're not immersed, you're not bathed in what Wall Street is all about, which is selling. And to sell, you have positive news. You're, right. it's, it's, you're looking for reasons to buy. And not coming from Wall Street, I was wired very differently. I was looking for the flaw in things, reasons to sell. Right. And, and, and that was the skill set that was so helpful in, in 2008, 2009. And and I think the skill set is really helpful today. And so, so my favorite comic book character is is one of the Inhumans. This, this, so, you know, this is in the Marvel universe. The Inhumans, you know, these mutants, right? And one of them is named Karnak, right? And, and the the you know, the conceit with the Inhumans is that you breathe this gas and it triggers this mutant ability, and everyone has one ability, right? And maybe it's what you'd call kind of the spot on the wall ability. Oh, I can make a spot appear on the wall, you know, useless. Uh, the the king is Black Bolt, right? So his voice, you know, it, 
the, the, the merest sound that he makes emits this vast destructive, you know, beam of energy, right? So there's this guy Karnak, and nobody really knew what his power was. And it turns out his is the most powerful ability of them all. Karnak can see the flaw in all things. And just that. And that's just the coolest power, right? And, you know, in a comic book. And, and I've, I've often thought that that's, that is what it's like to be a short seller, right? Is, is can you identify the, everything's got a flaw. Can you identify the flaw in all things? So, uh, Anyway, I've got a big poster of Karnak, uh, you know, in my, in, in my office. That's my mentality with, with this stuff. I, I love that. Uh, could you, what is Epsilon Theory and what was the, uh, what was the reason for starting Epsilon Theory? Well, the, the reason for starting Epsilon Theory is that, you know, my hedge fund stopped working. Right, right. I, I mean, we never lost money for clients. We did great in 05, we did great in 06, we did great in 07, we did great in 08. And then in, in, in March of 09, it's like you went to the wall and you just flipped a switch on our returns. Our returns flatlined. Again, we never lost money for clients, and I'm so proud of that. But what we did no longer worked. Right, our our long positions went up like everything else went up. Our short positions got killed like everything else. And like I say, we didn't lose money, uh, but it wasn't working. It wasn't working. And what it was was fundamental analysis, looking for catalysts. You know, all the stuff that we talk about with discretionary investing. And so we gave all the money back to our clients and. You know, that was the hardest thing professionally I've ever done. Frankly, it was probably the smartest thing I've ever done uh, because it, you know, those clients are loyal for a lifetime. Right. Uh, and, and so I was trying to figure out, well, well, how does investing work? How do you invest other people's money? What works today? So this is at the, the end of 2011 going into 2012. And so I went back again to this thread that's always gone through my research and, and, and my life, my professional career, of saying, well, what seems to have changed is the, is the impact of narrative, the, the, the unstructured data that we're hit with. It's, it's so potent today, uh, and it's potent because the – the ground doesn't seem steady beneath our feet, meaning the fundamentals don't seem steady, and yet prices are going up. How do, how do we account for that? And so I, you know, the, I started writing this, this blog, that, that, and I grandiosely titled my first piece a manifesto. I mean, how pretentious is that, right, to call it a manifesto? But it the name, Epsilon Theory, it goes back to that, that fundamental econometric formula for explaining portfolio returns. Yeah, what, what explains the, the money that you make or you lose? Well, we've got alpha, right, that idiosyncratic uh, performance of your, of your portfolio. You've got beta which is, well, that's your portfolio going up or down with everything else, with markets in general. 
And most people think, okay, yeah, that's the formula. It's alpha and beta. Those are the two components. Well, actually, and this is true for almost all econometric formulas, there's a, a third little Greek letter tacked on at the end, uh, epsilon. And that, that third little letter tacked on at the end of almost every econometric formula is, the, is epsilon, E, for error, right? right. Epsilon is, is what's left over from your alpha and your beta. Everything else is just in this kind of bucket over here. You say, well, that's just random error. That's just error. That's just, you know, who knows? That's just, no one can know that. But here's the truth. Inside that epsilon bucket is everything that we talk about when we talk about behavioral economics. It's everything that we talk about when we when we talk about um, playing the player. You know, every good trader in markets, he or she, you, they know how important it is not just to play the cards you're dealt, but also to play the players. And that's nowhere in alpha. That's nowhere in beta. It's all stuck in this bucket of epsilon for error. And so my manifesto was about, well, let's dig into this error bucket a little bit, because I think there are some real rules that can help us understand strategic behavior, playing the player, to use that poker analogy, and not just playing the cards. It's all in that epsilon bucket. And my job, my goal, is to try to pull some of that out. That's fascinating. One, one of the one of the interesting visualizations that you put on epsilon theory, and, and you discuss it regularly, um, uh, the narrative machine or the narrative engine, as that's reflected in yep. that in that graphic. Could you explain to us what that is and what the what, what what is the purpose of it? What's its function? Sure, sure. Well, you know, as I described earlier, what I really want to do in my research is visualize, and I mean that literally, visualize the unstructured data that surrounds us, the water in which we swim. And this is an idea, it's not original to me by any stretch of the imagination. So, so when I was doing my dissertation research, and I wasn't applying it to investing, I was applying this to um, uh, public opinion uh, being mobilized for countries that were going to start a war. And the idea was, well, we should be able to see some signs of, of governments making this effort to try to rally public opinion before they start shooting at someone. They demonize the other side. Exactly, exactly. There's got to be a reason. You know, even if you're a dictatorship or the like, you still care. You still want, you still want public opinion to be on your side before you start something risky, like start a fight. And so... You know, we should be able to see that in like newspaper editorials, right? So, or places where governments are able to get their opinion out there. And and so again, this isn't a new idea. It's it's and, and again, it wasn't original to me. It's it's been out there for a long time. The problem we had though with visualizing this, with with applying, I'll say, science to this was that until recently, it was just so hard to measure. Right. I, I measure is the wrong word. It was so hard to collect. Right. What, what, you know, when I was doing this, this research 30-some-odd years ago, I would hire undergraduates to go into the bowels of, you know, Widener Library and read microfiche. 
right? Uh, yeah. And then, you know, translate these editorials written in Spanish or German. And, you know, and then I would write out the code for this on a digital equipment mini frame. I think I used Pascal. And, and, you know, and all these words I'm using will be gibberish to half of your listeners here, right? Pas- Pascal, what's that, right? Uh, you know, I would have used Fortran, but it was anyway, that long story. I mean, I was doing this stuff before R was around. It just doesn't, it didn't exist. Today, not only do you have big data, meaning I can tap into Dow Jones, I can tap into Thomson Reuters, I can tap into LexisNexis, and everything that was published in the world is available to me. Boom, like that. It's all there. It's all there. Even more importantly, though, it's not big data. It's big compute. Because at the core of how you visualize, how you measure, how you analyze vast quantities of text, vast quantities of unstructured data, frankly, it's not AI. It's not machine learning. It, it is brute force computing processing power, which we now have available to us in unlimited capacity, right? So for me to be able to just, you know, plug into the wall and get as many flops and processors as I need from AWS or from Azure, man, that's what makes this possible. Because at, at what we call natural language processing Again, it's not complicated, right? What, here's what you're doing. You're taking a bag of text, right, a bag of words, an article, a transcript, what have you, and you want to compare every, what we call an engram, a word or a phrase, every word or phrase within that, that bag of text, and you want to compare it to every word or phrase, every engram, and another bag of text, and to another and another and another. Again, it's a simple comparison, right? but the numbers, because this is a factorial, becoming incredibly large. So, right. for example, let's say I've got a thousand articles. Each article has a thousand words or, or units of meaning, a thousand engrams. That's a thousand factorial. That's half a trillion calculations. <laughs> and I need to be able to do that like that. And a thousand articles with a thousand words, you know, that's, that's small. Right, we're dealing with ten thousand articles, each with you know unknown, you know, a lot of words in them. So it's not just big data. What's even more important, and this is what's really been available to us just over the last three or four years, and changes everything, is big compute. Uh, because once then you create these giant matrices, which are all the connections. That's what we're measuring. We're measuring the connections between all of these bags of text, all these these collections of unstructured data. Once you've got this gigantic matrix of all these connections, from there, you know, as the kids would say, it's just math, right? It's, it, it's matrix algebra to measure the structure of these giant matrices. And it, you can visualize it, you can... Uh, you know, once you've you've got some measurements of the structural aspects, you can do you know time series. You can compare it then to structured data sets like price, like volume, all the stuff that we care so much about in investing. Uh, 
that's at the heart of it, right? And what you're talking about, the visualization is just a, a call it a graph, right? A, 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 a map. You're basically taking this multidimensional matrix and you're, you're flattening it into two dimensions. So you can actually see the clusters of relationships, the, the, the articles that are similar to other articles, not because I've read all 5,000 articles and can tell you what they mean, but the, the computer, the computing processor, it doesn't know what this stuff means. It's just showing us here are the relationships. Here's the gravity of, the, of, of words. It's just so cool to see the world, what I like to call narrative world. And when you see it for the first time and you think, oh, wow, you know, I'm finally seeing this ocean that I know that I swim in all the time. And now I can actually see it. Man, that's it. It, it, it changes the way you see the world. It really does. For folks who haven't seen it, you, you need to go to Epsilon Theory and, t- .com and have a look at it. But I can, it's something like... Uh, a coral growth maybe with different colors and it shows collections of these different narratives i guess so i just want to ask you in terms of interpreting it are you you look at these um there are these narratives that are that become obvious because they're the same expressions are being used and they're trying to push a point of view is it the uh, uh, well let me just ask you how you interpret it first and then the second question would be uh, like at, at a second level, do you interpret it as being some of those stories are being put into that to, to influence public opinion? Some of them are just, some are just clearly picking up those things because they agree with that point of view. But is that would you, just those two questions? Sorry, Ben, I know that's that's quite, quite no, a lot. No, no, no. Those and, and those are really at the core of, of of all of this. You know, what are we looking at? You know, what does it mean? And you know, how does it get here, right? What's the life cycle of it? You know, how does it get here? The way I like to think about these graphs, I like to think of them as like a, a, I call them a star chart, right? It's like looking at a galaxy because distance and gravity is, is what we're really measuring here, right? So you look at these, you know, pretty pictures, right? You can turn them upside down, you can flip them up or down, none of that matters. What matters is distance, what matters is centrality, right? There, there's no, again, human intervention here. It's, it was called, it's called uh, unsupervised search. And, and, and so what, what you were seeing here is a representation of just the, the computer telling you through this brute force mechanistic comparison oh these articles we'll call them nodes the little dots each little individual star in the star chart right if they share a lot of language right a lot of grammar a lot of phrasing they're going to cluster together right there it, it really is a the, the visualization is a is, is a you know it, it really is the same it's it's a gravity formula. It really is, right? And if they're if they don't share language, if they don't share ideas and words, well, they're going to be very distant, and there's going to be no connective tissue between them. That's that's the first thing to get, you know, square when you're thinking about this. It's centrality, 
right? Because if you're in the center of this map, then you're exerting gravity on everything, right? right. You're at the core of, of what meaning there is for whatever it is you're searching on or you're, you're, you're looking at. And the second is to think of the, 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 the clustering here and how either everything gets tightly clustered, everything is about one topic, they all have this shared language, or, you know, you see this a lot of times, this can be a, this is, indicates complacency in markets, it's each little cluster is off to itself, you know, very few connections between the different clusters on something around, you know, you know, international trade or something like that. The what works for investing is very different, right, for those different states of the world. Now, this kind of gets to your second question, right, which is like, well, are these clusters of meaning, the, the shared language, a meme? Think of it as a meme, right? A, a narrative can be like a meme. And, you know, these things have a life cycle, right? You can see them grow. Uh, you can see them, uh, you know, reproduce, maybe, you know, merge. And ultimately they die. You see them fade away. And so, you know, the question is, well, how does that work? Right? Do they just kind of come, you know, out of the the ocean in which we swim by, by luck, by chance? Uh, some global event kind of, you know, creates it. The game theory here, <laughs> I, I, I cringe every time I say it, right? I still cringe when I say, oh, let's, let's think about the game theory here, right? The game we're talking about is what's called the common knowledge game. It's, you know, how do we react as a crowd to what we think the crowd knows? And the fact is that what drives the common knowledge game is what we would call uh, missionaries. Uh, you know, famous people who uh, have a, you know, a well-subscribed podcast, uh, <laughs> You know, or can get behind the camera at CNBC or or a you know a podium somewhere, and then what they say, the crowd believes that the entire crowd has heard it. That's what drives common knowledge. So my view, I, I, I used to be of the view that very little of these narratives was at, were actually created. My view today is that almost all of these narratives are created not not in the sense of oh i'm gonna it's although sometimes sometimes right you know somebody will say you know let me pick a name uh, you know uh you know it's his last name you know rhymes with muffet right so 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 boron muffet you know he's got an investment in some you know industry and wow i've got I'm scheduled to go on CNBC, you know, to talk about really whatever I want to talk about. I want to talk about this thing I just invested in, you know, that we just put a, a big stake in. I want to get people thinking about my theme here, my ideas for this. And so, you know, a lot of that happens. A lot of that happens, particularly in politics, particularly in markets. But the other source of this is less... I'll call it conspiratorial. Let's say you're, 
don't know, you're a, you're a stringer for the, the Wall Street Journal. And you've got to write an article on whatever your beat is, whatever it is. You're going to try to use words and language to make your article popular. Right. And the better you are at your job, the more you will say, oh, well, I can kind of pull from here and there. You'll have a, an instinct for creating a narrative that has legs. Right. That other people read it and say, "Ooh, that's an interesting idea. I'll write something similar to that. The business of media the business of communications, the business of filling the ocean in which we swim with messages, the business model of Wall Street, the business model of politics, it all revolves around supplying these narratives. That's what Wall Street does. Right? It, they, you had, you're not going to buy unless you have a reason to buy. What's your reason to buy? Oh, here's an idea. Here's an idea. So what I, I think we must always ask ourselves when we read something in the newspaper, why am I reading this now? That is, it's, it's not to say, oh, I'm going to dismiss it. It's to, to, to have some distance with what you're reading, to think critically, not just about the content, but the entire act of presenting that to you on a plate. Saying, you know, here, sir, here, ma'am, here's what you need to know right now. And you need to ask yourself, well, why am I reading this now? Again, that's one of those things that once you start looking for it, once you start seeing the world in that sort of way, it, it, it really changes everything. And, and, and I think in a way that makes it less likely that, I'll use another sucker, you know, another poker analogy, the less likely you end up being the, the sucker at the table. I think it's incredibly powerful and I had that down as one of the things I wanted to talk to you about because it is a great tool just for thinking through things when you're reading them. Why am I reading this now? I, 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 I learned that from you and I'm very grateful for it. I, I've always been skeptical, but I think it's, one, it's, a, it's a very good tool for asking. To, Toby, it's, 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 so, it's so hard for us to undo not just our, our, our training as human beings, but the way we're hardwired. And he, here's what I mean. So the, the most searched for term, and we've written about it you know, four or five times on, on the Epsilon Theory site, is you know, the name we give to it is called Gelman Amnesia. Right? And it's named after Murray Gelman, the, 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 the physicist who discovered the quark. And it was popularized by Michael Crichton. So, so, so Michael Crichton, if you remember, he his first big book was the Andromeda Strain, which, you know, is way before your time. But man, I've was read so all of them. I, I read. I finished the really? Great Train. Th I finished the Great Train Robbery last night. Wonderful, wonderful. So, you know, Michael Crichton, he invented the scientific thriller, right? So, so you know, Jurassic Park, all of all, all of that. That's Airframe. all. Every, right, that's all Michael Crichton, and Dragon's you know teeth. he, exactly, you know he. So he went Hollywood, right? So he became a producer and a director, and uh, and he was giving a, a talk one day, uh, and and he said, "Look, I I I, I got to tell you, this really struck me." He said, "Yeah, I, I 
was, you know, talking, you know, with my, my, my buddy, you know, Murray Gelman, for some reason they were, they were friends. And, and that's why I called it Gelman amnesia. And, and here's the phenomenon. It's that, well, you've probably had this experience, right? You, 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 you read in the newspaper about something that you know a lot about, right? It may, maybe it's a company you work for. Uh, you know, that, that's, that's happened to me before where, where there's an article in the Wall Street Journal about a company that I worked for. And you read that article and you think, oh, my God, how can I get this retracted? Everything about this article is wrong, right? They, they've missed the facts, They've missed the, the, the reasoning. They've missed the, the origin. They've missed the outcome. Literally everything. The causation about is back article. to front. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right, right, right. And, and so and Crichton said, it's, he calls these, he said, I call these articles wet streets cause rain, right? That's, that's, that's what he calls these articles. And, you know, you'll read it and you think, oh my God, this, this is horrible. And then, and this is the amnesia part, we turn the page and we read an article about something that we don't know anything about. And Crichton said, you know, in my case, let's call it an article about Palestine. And I'll read that article on the next page and I'll go, huh, that's interesting. <laughs> and God, we're all, that. this happens to me every day. I'm, I'm sure it happens to you as well. It happens to all of us. We're hardwired to respond positively when a missionary, which can be a, a, a newspaper article writer, you know, someone who speaks from a position of authority to us, we're hardwired to respond positively to that. And that's why narrative is always so powerful, particularly today when everyone is in on the act, right? Everyone's figured this out. Right from central bankers, you know, politicians always knew this, but now central bankers know it, CEOs know it, everyone on in media knows it, and you combine that with the fundamentals not being sturdy beneath our feet. That's why it's so important, I think, for us to be able to visualize it, to see it, to think critically about what we're accepting, uh, because again, not to deny it, but to give us some distance uh, so that we're not the sucker at the table. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I like to follow. I, I said to the, the great Twitter account, Rudy Havenstein, I said oh, to him Rudy's the other the day, you know, I, I like to follow guys who I like to follow the conspiracy theorists. It's like that scene in Men in Black when he says he likes to go and read the truth and he picks up the National Enquirer. I know you're going to be wrong on a lot of things, but I just want to see an alternative point of view so I can make up my own mind about what messages we're all being are being shoved down our throats and i think to give you uh to give you credit for this you were way ahead on coronavirus and the risks of that and i think it was you and chris cole and a few other guys that alerted me early enough so i was we were well and truly prepared for as as prepared as we could possibly be so can you how did that come to your attention and how did you recognize so early on the, the the risks and the threat there so it, it, it was it was really from a, a Reddit thread, and I, you know, I still don't know who it was, who was talking about, okay, here are the, the confirmed cases, the caseload numbers that are coming out of China. And, um, you know, there, was, there, there were a lot of mistakes in that original data, right? Uh, you know, uh, let's, you know, figure out the R squared of this, you know, just 
stuff that doesn't mean anything. But the central insight was exactly correct. And that central insight was these numbers can't be right. 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 This is not how a disease works. Right. Uh, and if it's not right, well, why wouldn't it be right? And, and the answer, and this is the, again, this has been my professional career is trying to understand, you know, numbers and statistics and then understand why governments have this vested interest in, you know, making up their own story to explain something. And in the case of China, making up the numbers. That's that's the only explanation for the numbers we were getting was that they were making them up, right? Directionally, were they correct? Maybe, kind of, sort of, right? Really, maybe, kind of, sort of. Uh, but what was then clear was that not only was there this concerted effort to downplay the virulence of this disease for domestic political reasons in China, for bureaucratic reasons with the World Health Organization, for, again, domestic political reasons in every other country in the world. But we also had good, now, analysis pretty early on, again, from, you know, doctors sponsored by the World Health Organization to say, no, actually, here's what we're estimating you know, the R naught value, the, 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 the reproduction rate of this virus actually is. Here's what we're seeing uh, in terms of, of survival when hospitals are functioning well and the doctors aren't sick. And here's what we're seeing when hospital systems are overwhelmed. And it was that combination of, I think, again, being very attuned to frankly, the lie that China was promoting with its numbers, the lie that was accepted at face value and then promoted by the World Health Organization, the lie that was, you know, accepted by the United States and other, you know, governments, again, for their own reasons to try to, you know, we don't want to scare anybody. That's what got me on it. And, and, and on it early, and and it, again, it's it's one of those periods in time where thinking differently and maintaining some distance between your your own mind and the official story it makes all the difference in the world. I think I was I remember I was in Austin Airport and I saw a tweet from somebody with that Reddit thread where they said it looks like they're using some sort of there's some sort of underlying formula to show yeah. it to generate these numbers and these numbers are just following this formula as in they're just the next day they're just using running the formula again and it gives them a, another set of numbers and then if you look at the behavior they've quarantined this entire city there's something much worse is actually happening here and then you know as one of the everybody should be aware that one of the great threats that the world faces is some sort of uh, pandemic that we don't have and I, I honestly I thought it was going to be something that we had developed antibiotics for that had just stopped working and so, yep. but but a flu is a flu is an incredibly dangerous uh, virus, and uh, there are lots of precedent for it killing lots of people in a hundred years ago with the Spanish. That is, flu. it's the Andromeda strain all over again. <laughs> we were just talking about Michael Crichton. Uh, yeah, it's, it, here we go all over again. So, given that you you've had 
you've had some time to, to, to think about what what should we be doing? What are we doing? Um, where does it go? Where do we go? So I, I think the, the, the new information, um, and by that I mean that we could only now know that from having observed the the spread and the behavior of both people and the virus outside of China. You know, it seems very clear that the real um, impactful spreading happens with asymptomatic carriers of, of, of the disease, right? So that the advice, oh, if you're feeling sick, stay home, right? If that's what you're doing, you're too late. Right, you're not going to catch the people who are really spreading this stuff. And to do that, we have to engage in, you know, by by whatever means necessary, the social distancing. No, no large crowds. That's it. Just no crowds. Of course, the problem with that is, is you know, until a vaccine is developed, you can't sound the all clear and say, okay, go back to having crowds again, right? Uh, so that's very problematic, but that really is what we have to do. It, it, it's not just, you know, the people who are experiencing it, but it's, it, it, it's everyone because it's the, the asymptomatic carriers that are, that are doing most of the damage. We don't have to get the r naught down to zero, right? You don't have to stop it cold. We just have to get it below one. Right, we we just have to get to a point where it's not spreading. The problem with that, of course, is that unless you take very draconian measures, which are even more difficult in a in a in the West, and are impossible to enforce in in, in many areas of the of the of the world, uh, you know, you can't even do that. You can't even get it, you know, you know, b- below one. So I'm not optimistic about the long-term trajectory here. I think the, uh, what we have to do is we have to protect our healthcare system at all cost. That's something I think we've been poor at to date because we haven't taken seriously the notion of asymptomatic transmission. But I think we're getting there. I, I think that what has changed, and I can't emphasize enough how important this change is. It's really just happened over the last week. The complacency narrative, which was there at the highest levels of certainly American government, uh, is gone. It's over. Right? I, I mean, I still cringe when I hear Trump gives a speech or a press conference, but the difference today from the difference a week ago is night and day. Right. Nobody's saying it's just the flu. Everyone is taking this seriously and understands the threat that it is. That's one, and that's so important. Here's the other really important thing. Today we have wheels turning in the private sector and at the local level that weren't turning a week ago. Right. I, I don't I don't hold out a lot of hope. Hope's the wrong word. I don't have a lot of faith in national governments to save us, right? What I have enormous faith in is my neighbor, 
what I have enormous faith in is the ingenuity of hum- the human animal as expressed in private companies and private associations. I, I think this really will be our finest hour to, to crib a line from, you know, from Churchill. Uh, but it's a it's a war, and it 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 it, it will absolutely be a struggle. But I, I feel so much more hopeful today than I did a week and a half. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I was I was more panicked before uh, everybody else started panicking. And when everybody else started panicking, I thought now we might be able to actually solve this problem. Even though I think of so, the trajectory looks that it looks like it really gets more frightening over the next few weeks at least and then uh, perhaps we'll start to it'll look like it's being got under control beyond that I'm hopeful yeah so one of the ways that reminds me so much of 2008 in the financial crisis and, and and I know it's a totally different application but let me describe to you the similarity in my gut and what I'm feeling about crowd behavior. So in, in, in March of 2008, markets were killed, just slammed. And at the end of March, Bear Stearns, which was a stock, where was Bear Stearns? I think it's like $120. You know, it was taken out in the street and it was shot in the head. That's really what happened. You know, because okay, we're going to make an example out of you, Bear Stearns. Took it out, shot it in the head. Uh, you know, sold the carcass to J.P. Morgan, and they started a new narrative. And that narrative was mission accomplished. Systemic risk is off the table. We had a bad apple with Bear Stearns, but. You saw what we did. We took it out on the street. We shot it in the head. By May of 2008, markets had recovered entirely. They were they were back at their their highs, right? And then we had the summer of 2008, where and the, again, it's obvious if you're paying attention to it. Systemic risk wasn't off the table, right? It, it, it was more pervasive than than you could dream of. And I'll tell you, as a short seller in 2008, that was a frustrating time, that recovery, that narrative that, oh, well, it's all fine now. I I see something similar to that happening. here. Everybody wants it to be a quick V-shaped recovery where, okay, yeah, we can shut down for a couple of weeks. All right, we can do that. Uh, and then it's it's going to be fine, right? Then then we go back to normal. And, and my point is, we don't go back to normal, right? This this is with us now forever. It's going to change things forever, even after we get a vaccine. So that doesn't mean necessarily being bearish. I, I mean, I mean, look at 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 this point, it's not. There's not a lot to be done by being bearish about markets. I want to be constructive and hopeful about what sort of society we can con- construct on the other side of this, not just in our investing and in our market lives, but in our political and our social lives. I think this is an opportunity for us to come together and help our neighbors and shed this 
it's not just a veneer, the shell of financialization that has hollowed out our society and our markets. I, I, I am hopeful that we come out of this with a much more human and real response to life. Uh, that's my hope. And I'll keep doing everything I can do to, 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 to speak what I think is the truth about this. But I think that's what we all have to do. Clear eyes, see the world for what it is, and then act with full hearts. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. It's, uh, you know, high school football in Odessa, Texas, and it's, it's, a, good, it's a good phrase for living your life, too. I do like that. It's it's a little it's a little reminiscent of my my friend Chris Cole has this. Uh, he says that volatility is an instrument of truth, and he says you can bend the narrative away from the truth for a very long period of time, but ultimately the the difference between the two has to collapse because the truth ultimately wins out. So I do think it's uh, you, you're doing a, a great deed by telling the truth as you see it out there. Thank you. I appreciate that. That's all. That's all any of us can do. It really is. So, just in practical terms, what, what do you what do you hope to see beyond this? Uh, what, and what do you expect to see in t- in terms of th- our response to this and other other things? Uh, the way that society changes is never from the top down, right? Society will not change because someone new is elected president society will not change because you know some billionaire says this or some billionaire says that the only thing that changes the world is bottom-up activity by well it's called packs right people who treat each other not as a means to an end not as an instrument but treat each other as an end in themselves and your pack Maybe limited to your family. Your pack may be as big as, you know, a circle of friends. Your pack may be uh, an association you're in, right? It's whoever you feel those bonds of loyalty and willingness to sacrifice. Your pack is not your company. Your pack is not your political party. And we've been fooled into believing that they are. What I think comes out of this, what I am extremely hopeful comes out of this, and I really believe will come out of this, is a realization that all of these narratives that we've been told, uh, which are, to use Chris Cole's language, all short vol narratives, right? uh, these events give the lie to all of that, and it, and it, and it forces us to confront what we all know is true and has been true for thousands of years is what I like to call the small L liberal virtues of freedom, liberty, particularly of thought, autonomy. It's also the small C conservative values of honor, of community, of sacrifice, these are values that they're not gone, but they've been they've been pushed down, right? They've been pushed down by the small, by the the short vol narratives of, of what I like to call the nudging state and the nudging oligarchy. You know, to use some of my terminology. Yeah, this it's it's 
there there's a strength that comes out of a shared experience a shared experience of pain which we are going to and loss which we'll have with this virus but i'm i'm, I'm really confident really more than hopeful that, that we can all come together on this uh, i i couldn't have said it better myself and i think that that's uh, an ideal sentiment to leave it on if if folks want to get in contact with you or they want to follow you follow along how, how do they do that ben I'm so easy. So it's at Epsilon Theory on Twitter. It is EpsilonTheory.com. It's, uh, you know, I, I, as you can tell, I love talking about this stuff. So so, so send me an email. Uh, you know, really, I, I we call ourselves a pack. And, and I, I really mean that. Uh, it's, it's changed my life because I started writing from a pretty dark place. Thought it was the fact is not alone. You know, you're not alone. We're not alone. There are hundreds of thousands of us, young, old, men, women, every country in the world. You just don't know it. You know, you don't know if they're sitting next to you at the office. It's like Fight Club, right? Except the first rule here is it's okay to tell somebody about it. Yeah. So EpsilonTheory.com. That's the place. That's great. Dr. Ben Hunt, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. (laughs) 